Oopsla Podcast brings you up to speed on topics covered at this year's Oopsla Conference in Montreal, Canada. For more information, visit the conference website at oopsla.org. You all, no doubt, have heard of artificial intelligence, and some of you of LISP, certainly time-sharing, even utility computing. All of these ideas found part of their origins with John McCarthy. I've known John since 1975. I've worked with him several times and taught LISP with him from time to time. In the early 1980s, I even worked on a version of the advice taker which was a common-sense reasoner able to accept advice in the form of sentences in a formal logic language. He was one of the founders and certainly the father of the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Lab. We called it SAIL, one of several vibrant idea-producing labs from the 1960s, 1970s, and 1980s, the likes of which we have not seen since. John is the most immediate and exacting thinker I have ever met. He sometimes will seem to be paying attention to something else while you're talking to him, and then he'll turn and tell you the most insightful and difficult thing about your topic, something you never thought of nor thought remotely possible. After I got my PhD and John was thinking of hiring me, I walked into his office and found him reading my dissertation. I asked him what he thought, and he said, it's not very good, (laughs) but I think I'll hire you anyway. Remember that? Everyone who worked for him was frighteningly smart, and I felt overwhelmed, as I still do whenever I talk to him. One of the proudest things in my life is that when John gets stuck while programming Lisp, he calls me to help him. Imagine being able to help John McCarthy. I was better at volleyball than him, too. My good friend and mentor, John McCarthy. So um, this uh, talk is entitled Elephant 2000 for the year 2005, but actually I've had to uh, retreat further, which is to say um, elephant uh, is uh, not a state to be implemented even yet, and uh, so I want to discuss it from the point of view of a collection of ideas uh, that can go into different programming languages, even Java. Okay, now the first time I gave this talk, I gave it at a LISP conference, so I'll skip past the LISP stuff. Uh, The key idea uh, is that Uh, natural language has semantic features for describing procedures that are absent uh, in present programming languages. And by looking at how we describe procedures to one another, uh, we can perhaps find uh, more features that we should put in programming languages. And uh, so uh, I want to Uh, present the result of uh, uh, basically two of these features of natural language that I think uh, may be 
of some importance for programming language. Uh, and um, the lead example of one of the features uh, is uh, a passenger has a reservation if he has made one and not canceled it. And in this statement, uh, there's nothing said about a database. Uh, and indeed, um, the definition of a passenger having a reservation uh, has nothing to do with uh, a database. Uh, a database is a way of implementing, uh, is part of the way of implementing uh, the uh, honoring of uh, reservations. And uh, when we say useful features, semantic features of natural language, I don't mean syntax. So uh, the COBOL mistake was to imitate uh, some syntactic features of English and uh, essentially to make no uh, extension of the semantics of existing programming languages, for example, Fortran. Okay, so um, it was called elephant uh, because of the slogan that an elephant never forgets. Uh, so uh, one can have uh, abstractions or things in the language John's reservation, if you will use English, reservation of John, or a reference in your favorite database language. Uh, uh, going from a reservation to a virtual object. And uh, you can do this with abstract syntax, which is, uh, is something that I advocated in my uh, article towards the mathematical science of computation in IFIPS 1962. So one could add references to the past to Fortran or Lisp or COBOL or C and even to Java. Uh, you can elaborate this a little bit. Uh, John's most recent reservation, uh, recentest of reservation of John or sentences like Pat has a reservation uh, preceding any reservation by Mike. Uh, let's see, I think I want to... Uh, oh, well, I will. Uh, we can refer to the past, but we can imagine also referring to the future. The baggage handlers will be ready a half an hour before the flight arrives. Not the same as before the flight is scheduled to arrive. Uh, referring to the future involves some wishful thinking. And if you allow yourself to refer to the future, then you can write paradoxical programs in which you uh, have as a condition for not doing something that you did it, that you will do it. Uh, okay, now we can consider implementation. So references to the past are implemented by suitable data structures. So a compiler would have to invent them. Uh, and uh, how, how might it invent them? 
uh, it would notice it, there would be a rule in the program that says that if a passenger has a reservation and he shows up at the gate, then let him on the airplane. And uh, then the compiler would would realize that it would have to know that the passenger has a reservation and therefore would have to uh, invent a data structure. Uh, and presumably it would do this in quite a standard way and, and so forth. Um, <clears throat> an interpreter could be a little simpler, uh, namely if it kept a journal of events like uh, the making and canceling of reservations. And um, then um, it could use this journal of events to uh, compute references to the past. So uh, it could evaluate uh, whether this passenger has a reservation uh, by looking in the journal to see if that he made one and uh, then further checking the germinal journal to see that it uh, uh, hasn't been canceled. Now, um, I put in re references to the future just simply because the past and future are slightly symmetrical. Uh, but uh, I don't have any idea of any general way of uh, uh, implementing so a reference to when the flight ar will arrive involves prediction, and referring to the schedule is not always uh, the best way to predict. Uh, so uh, with the future, uh, some AI uh, may be required. See, I'm getting through this pretty rapidly. Uh, I should. Uh, anybody wants to ask any questions at any point, they're welcome. Now, um, so that's enough about uh, an elephant never forgets. Uh, now, there's another slogan involving uh, elephants taken from Dr. Seuss. I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. An elephant's faithful, 100%. Um, so elephant programs uh, have a concept of being faithful, uh, that, which we can evaluate them. And um, the idea here is that the outputs and the inputs of um, elephant programs are identified as speech acts and not just identified as strings. Now, the idea of um, uh, speech acts was developed by some English ordinary language philosophers, specifically uh, J.L. Austin, and uh, they were annoyed by logic, perhaps because they don't want to take the trouble to learn it. Um, and uh, so what, uh, uh, the way they got out of that uh, was to say, well, you know, uh, speech acts are, aren't, don't just have truth values, uh, which can be 
evaluated according to logical semantics. They also have effects, so they were interested in these. So, <clears throat> uh, I now pronounce you man and wife is not simply a, an assertion that these two people are married. It has to be done by the, someone with the authority to cause them to be man and wife under appropriate conditions. And similarly, I, I sentence you to be hanged by the neck until dead. Um, now, uh, speech acts, ordinary speech acts, include offers and acceptances, statements, questions, uh, promises, uh, and commands. Uh, and each of them has its own uh, conditions for uh, per- proper for performance. One also state, describe, assert, warn, remark, comment, apologize, uh, sentence to, I guess, to uh, imprisonment or something like that, argue or persuade. And on the input, input side, they're understand, realize, and be offended by. Um, uh, <clears throat> okay, now, uh, so, uh, I've um, left out some stuff. Okay, now what about the correct performance of speech acts? Uh, well, um, uh, if you promise something, then you have to be in a position, uh, at least to some extent, to carry out the promise. So um, the maitre d' at a hotel can give you a reservation but just somebody who happens to be standing around uh, cannot give you a reservation, cannot be authorized. Uh, Secondly, the promises should be carried out. Now, the natural language philosophers discussed uh, these various kinds of speech acts. Uh, John Searle, in particular, had a substantial definition of promise, and he put in his promise that the person making the promise should expect that uh, the person receiving the promise would get some good out of carrying out the promise. And I decided that for computer purposes, I didn't want that. And I don't think it always applies in life. In other words, the person giving you a table for two at seven o'clock may do that because that's his job but he might feel that uh, the good cook is sick today and it will not do the person um, any good uh, to show up for, uh, for dinner at 7 o'clock. So uh, I leave out the idea that it does you any good. Uh, and my more general point uh, <clears throat> is that we can take these Uh, speech acts and uh, get something out of the philosophical discussion 
of them, uh, but we don't have to be bound by the uh, attempts that the philosophers have made to uh, uh, characterize them. Now, uh, let's consider programs that are acting in society. Uh, So, uh, programs that buy and sell goods and services uh, make commitments and receive them. They undertake financial obligations on behalf of their owners and other operators. And their correct performance includes fulfilling their obligations and insisting that obligations made to them be fulfilled. Now, um, increasingly, uh, programs uh, belonging to different companies uh, interact with each other. For example, a program that uh, keeps track of the supplies of some entity might order it more from another company uh, when the supplies get low. And uh, then uh, this sort of thing, as it does when it's people who do it, sometimes leads to a lawsuit. And the lawsuit would concern such things as whether uh, the program was uh, did in fact order it, uh, and uh, who's responsible for uh, miscommunications or misdeliveries uh, of one kind or another. So we can regard these uh, programs as having some authorization to make uh, commitments of. Uh, one kind or another. Now, um, this is an idea that I'm uh, adding on, and that is internal speech acts. Uh, At some point during execution, a program may execute a statement asserting the intention that from then on the variable X will remain less than the variable Y. Now, uh, it could also ask, is the execution correct so far, and will this process terminate? So internal speech acts give a form of intrinsic correctness. For example, correct programs carry out their intentions. Uh, uh, Now, let's consider that a little bit more. A program... uh, has in it a statement, uh, I intend that X will remain less than Y. Now, this statement does not generate any code, or it need not generate any code. Uh, But it does uh, generate, from the point of view of a program verifier, looking at the program, uh, a condition that has to be fulfilled. If it makes a commitment... Uh, an internal commitment of this kind, then uh, it would be incorrect if X did not, uh, the program would be incorrect if the variable X did not remain less than the variable Y. Uh, Now we can ask, 
Well, what kind of, uh, how are such things represented? And uh, the answer is that, or an answer is, that they're represented by logical sentences that are similar in character to the input-output conditions uh, that are used in the um, in program verification uh, of the Floyd-Hoare uh, type, uh, except it's as though these internal inputs can occur at any time during the execution uh, of the program. But uh, basically, uh, when you work that out, you uh, get a sentence that has to be uh, verified uh, if the, uh, has to be proved in order to show that the program uh, carries out this commitment. And uh, it's interesting there that there's a form of intrinsic correctness rather than a correctness uh, specified from the outside. Programs carry out their, uh, correct programs carry out their attention, intentions. Now we can consider, uh, this is uh, somewhat of a change from the direct character of uh, elephant, but it's something that applies to elephant programs. Um, and um, it's related to uh, uh, something that the uh, philosophers have discussed, uh, although I don't think it's identical. Uh, first of all, a program can have input-output specifications. Um, and these depend on the program and the programming language, and their verification can be done just knowing the program and the programming language. Uh, now, um, the other kind of specification is that a program can have accomplishment specifications. Uh, and uh, these can depend on facts about the world. Uh, for example, that an air traffic control program will prevent collisions or that Amazon customers will be satisfied with the service uh, or just more specifically that their books will be delivered to them in a reasonable time. Now, um, some of the um, arguments against the utility of program verification have been based on confusing the two kinds of uh, specifications. Because uh, when program verification uh, was first proposed and developed, uh, basically speaking, only input-output specifications uh, were uh, considered uh, relating the inputs of the program to the outputs of the program. Uh, where the program ran all by itself. Uh, but uh, more recently, of course, and more recently being, say, uh, back in the 1970s or something like that, uh, one had uh, programs whose important specifications uh, were accomplishment specifications rather than just uh, input-output specifications. 
And then arguments were given that, therefore, the specifications of a program were were vague. Uh, uh, and the, therefore, uh, program verification was impossible. Well, uh, the verification of input-output uh, specifications is a straightforward mathematical problem, although it may not be easy in some cases. Uh, the verification of um, uh, accomplishment specification depends on facts about the world. But if we have this air traffic control uh, program, then its correct, uh, its accomplishment specifications say that, for example, that the airplane shall not collide, and it's based on assumptions about the airplanes obeying instructions and being capable of obeying the instructions and so forth. And therefore, um, it's dependent on the correctness of the assumptions about the behavior of airplanes. But this is no different from any other form of applied mathematics. In other words, we are all, uh, every time we travel, uh, we bet our lives that the uh, equations that were used for the Stiffness of the wings of the airplanes were done correctly uh, so that the uh, vibrations won't cause the wings to fall off. Uh, and as we, as maybe only a few of us may remember, back in the 1960s or so forth, there was an airplane for which this was not correct, and uh, occasionally the wings did fall off. Uh, until they uh, uh, figured out what they had to do. Um, okay. Now, um, the Speech Act philosophers considered uh, dis- distinguished illocutionary and perlocutionary speech acts. Uh, the leading examples are he told her versus he convinced her. Uh, Or on the input side, he heard it or he learned it. Uh, Are these... um, Now, uh, it seems to me this distinction corresponds to uh, input-output, the contrast between input-output and accomplishment specifications. Uh, And for... in an early version of the paper, uh, I simply uh, used the philosophical terms and talked about uh, elocutionary and perlocutionary specifications for programs. Uh, but I decided merely that um, it was it would be more helpful if I didn't. Uh, uh, in that way brag about having read the, philosoph- the distinctions that the philosophers made, but put them into uh, a language which was uh, more apparent both to me and to other people. Now, um, 
One of the things that I didn't advertise uh, in this talk, but I did advertise in the written version of the paper, was that um, elephant programs would be logical sentences. And um, uh, this is something that I have advocated programs as logical sentences. And in the paper, I have some uh, examples showing, specifying um, elephant programs in that way. Uh, but uh, what I'll actually do is introduce programs uh, logic as logical sentences uh, in a more uh, understandable kind of example uh, for uh, algolic uh, programs. So let's consider the following algolic program, where those numbers at the left are not part of the program but are just uh, statement numbers there. And so it's a program for doing uh, multiplication by means of successive additions. So you have a variable P for the product that you initialized to zero. You have a variable, a countdown variable that you initialized to N. And if I equals zero, then you go to done. Otherwise, P gets P plus M, and I gets I minus one, and you go back to the loop, and then you're done. Uh, you will note that um, uh, I do not adhere uh, to uh, Dijkstra's excommunication of uh, programmers who use go-tos. Um, so you can consider me to be excommunicated uh, by Dijkstra. But that was a long time ago, probably... Uh, he did that before some of you were born. Um, uh, okay, now this program can be proved partial correct, uh, that it computes the product by M&N. Um, around 1969, Zohar Mana wrote a PhD thesis at Carnegie Mellon uh, on proving uh, that programs terminated. Uh, and turns out that if you just extend his idea for proving uh, programs terminate, then you get a sentence which proves that not only the, that the program terminates, but it gives the correct answer. And uh, since I, almost everyone here will have forgotten Mana's thesis, and probably Mana's forgot it himself. Uh, uh, but now let's go to uh, introducing Algol 48. Now, Algol 48 is what I imagine mathematicians might have done uh, if they had, had undertaken to devise a programming language in 1948 uh, and used uh, no language, uh, no logical language, uh, different from uh, what they were used to. That's why uh, I said 48. So this is the same program as before. Uh, and we introduce three variables. One is P of T, which represents this product, this variable that accumulates the product. 
and an I, which in, uh, represents the countdown variable, and a PC, which represents the state of the program counter. So uh, the program is a conditional expression. Uh, P of t plus 1 uh, is that if PC of t is 0, then 0. That has to do with the initialization. If it's 3, then uh, that's the statement where you add m. Um, and otherwise, it's unchanged. And similarly for i, and then if we look at PC, um, then uh, the conditional uh, is represented by the first line there. Um, if PC, t, uh, PC of T is 2 uh, and I of T equals 0, then PC becomes 6. Else if it's P 5, then 2, and otherwise it's uh, increased by 1. Then the correctness of this program is given by the statement for all m and n, n greater than or equal to zero implies for all t, if uh, pc of t is zero, then there exists uh, pc of t equals zero is, the, is means that it's at the starting point. Then there will exist a t prime greater than t such that PC of T prime equals 6 and P of T prime equals MN. Uh, okay, now the interesting thing about this uh, way of doing things, um, and its advertisement, um, is that it does not involve any theory of programming. Uh, it's just a mathematical statement provable from these sentences describing the program and the axioms of arithmetic, for example, uh, the piano uh, axioms. Uh, so, uh, therefore, uh, I regard uh, theories of programming, uh, including my own, as being slightly uh, superfluous. Um, Now, I invented an extension of this language, uh, which I called ALGOL 50. Um, and uh, the extension was devised for the purpose of being able to glue programs together. And the way you glue programs together is uh, you simply take the conjunction of the sentences involving the two programs and introduce some equality statements so that the begin statement of one is the end statement of the other. Um, and that, what that means is that the uh, program points uh, have to be represented by variables uh, so that you can glue them together. Um, otherwise, this program um, is the same as the ALGOL 48 program. It's just a little bit longer. Um, and uh, the uh, proof of uh, correctness of this program fragment uh, is the same.
Now, I worked a bit on um, extending this technique to introduce more of the features of programming language, uh, including uh, entering subroutines and uh, uh, loops uh, for statements uh, and so forth. But um, I'll spare you. Well, this big paragraph here is the first uh, is something I've already said, so I won't I won't read it to you. And now the ideas of Algo Forty Eight were first invented by Nissim Francis and Amir Penueli, and uh, from my point of view, uh, it was a mistake when they abandoned them and went to uh, temporal logic. Uh, so what's uh, what is the issue, uh, say between me and the people who use temporal logic? Uh, well, um, temporal logic has some good things. Uh, more of it is decidable than first-order logic. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, it seems to me that uh, the system in which you use the time. Uh, explicitly as a parameter as ALGO 48 does and uh, uh, ALGO 50 does uh, is uh, more powerful and uh, also will work better in uh, doing uh, other features of programming languages uh, including the uh, uh, features of uh, of elephant. Okay, uh, now uh, that's basically the end of the slides. Um, so let me sum up a little bit. Um, one is that when we describe procedures to each other, uh, we uh, use language. Uh, language features that have so far not embedded uh, been embedded in programming languages. And uh, I gave two examples, but I'm sure there are lots more features that people can identify and put in programming languages. Let me tell you um, a little story. There was a language... Um, for a programming language invented for children uh, that had uh, objects and like, blocks and things they could uh, move around. And uh, so children could write programs uh, for it. And uh, I succeed, I thought, in breaking it by... Um, offering the following question. Suppose a child wants a program that will choose the largest piece of cake, uh, something that I could imagine a child might want to do. Uh, then it turned out that in order to do it, uh, the child had to introduce a variable 
to represent the largest piece of cake found so far, uh, initialize this variable to zero, and then uh, move down the pieces of cake and uh, compare the largest so far with the with the current size of the current piece of cake and uh, so forth, which is exactly what a uh, a student would do in his first uh, week or two of a course in programming. And as we know, uh, it would take a student, a little, a college student, uh, a day or so to get uh, familiar with enough concepts in order to be able to do it. So um, what we want is a programming language uh, and I don't have an idea precisely how to do it, in which it is straightforward to speak, to refer to the largest piece of cake. Now, um, it can be done quite nicely with the uh, Hilbert epsilon symbol uh, or with uh, Russell and Whitehouse iota, iota x, blah, the x such that, and uh, epsilon symbol, an x uh, such that. So it can be done in logic in a perfectly uh, straightforward way. But we want a programming language or programming features that are suitable for children and also for generals um, who, also, who have no, no more desire than children to be uh, immersed in the details. Uh, if, a, if a general wants something that will uh, select uh, the most powerful missile, then he does not want to express it by uh, saying, well, all right, what we need is, uh, what you need to do, general, is to say, is to set a variable to zero and then increment it with the, by comparing successful, successive missiles. Uh, uh, okay, so that was the basic idea of uh, this elephant, was to take some features of natural language and to uh, uh, say what do we want in the way of uh, programming languages. Uh, now, I'll, let me say a little more about the um, Speech Act part of it. Uh, it seems to me that as uh, computer programs are given more and more uh, responsibilities for actions that have uh, commercial consequences, interacting with other pro programs belonging to other organizations uh, and with people, then uh, they will have to uh, work in, uh, in terms of speech acts. And uh, so uh, you can have an output that says, I promise, and not just this, uh, which results in the emission of a certain string uh, but uh, it, the program's correctness is related to 
the identification of that output as a promise and not just as the emission of a certain string. Okay, I'd be glad to take any questions or any arguments. Good afternoon, sir. I, uh, I apologize for the simplistic question, but I'm curious what uh, motivation, excuse me, uh, what background reading you have done in Speech Act. Specifically, have you looked at Gross's uh, shared plans theory and Cohen-Levesque's joint intentions theory and what motivation that might have had for you? Uh, the answer is really the only thing that I looked at were the books by uh, Austin and Searle. Uh, so can you tell me what, um, uh, how uh, you think uh, these uh, more recent work, I, at least I assume it's more recent, uh, would uh, affect the use of speech acts by computer programs? Well, it's very interesting. A lot of your talk reminded me of both of these theories. You know, they talk about uh, illocation and perlocation. They talk about, specifically, uh, Gross's work talks about contracting. Uh, you know, this is in an agent's type of environment where there are programs uh, working together. So the idea is one agent wants to make an intention uh, available to another agent and say, I promise that either I will complete this or if I find that I can't complete this, I will explicitly inform you and make sure that you know. So it sounded very similar to the ideas that you were presenting. Uh, well, quite possibly it is. Uh, I've been pursuing these ideas. The first draft of this paper, which I admit only had the um, reference to the past in it, was 1979. So I've been thinking about it for some time since. I forget when I put in the illocutionary and perlocutionary stuff, or, uh, and then renamed it. Uh, let me recommend to them that they speak of input-output and um, accomplishment uh, specifications and abandon the philosopher's um, uh, terminology. Um, uh, so I don't know uh, what the when, when are these papers dated? Mm. If I remember correctly, Conan Levesque was first, and that was early '90s. I think that Barbara Gross did her work in the mid to late '90s, but I'm not positive about that. Uh huh. All right. Well, uh, I, it sounds like the sort of thing that should be done. And I apologize for hogging the mic, but it doesn't seem anybody else is around. Unless there are other questions, I would be very interested in seeing your initial slides on LISP. I think that functional programming languages have a lot to offer uh, in terms of ideas for OO programmers. So unless there are other questions, I would love to see that. Thank you, sir. You think I should do it? <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay, um, so I first gave this talk, or a version of this talk, at a LISP conference, so 
uh, and I got the idea of using list structures from uh, the Newell and Simon presentation of IPL in 1956. And IPL was really bad as a programming language. Uh, and I decided to base my list processing on uh, Fortran. And uh, I was a consultant to Nathaniel Rochester's IBM Information Research Department, and I advised Herbert Gerlernter on his Fortran list processing language. Herbert is the father of the more famous David Gerlernter. Um, and uh, to that one, I contributed Carr, Kutter, and Kant's, but making the value of Kant's a pointer uh, to a word taken from free storage was uh, Gelernter and Gerbrich's idea. In the summer of 58, I decided to make a new list processing language, not liking the restrictions that Fortran imposed on FLPL. Uh, the basic uh, restriction is that Fortran does not allow uh, recursive subroutines. Uh, and I wanted conditional expressions, which I had uh, invented previously uh, in connection with a chess program, and, but I didn't immediately think of Lisp as a functional programming language. And I undertook a sim program for symbolic differentiation of algebraic expressions. And it was apparent that I could directly copy the rules given in a calculus text um, if I used functions defined by recursive conditional expressions. So if we look at the calculus textbook, there are formulas, like, say, the formula for the derivative of a sum or the formula for the derivative of a product. Uh, and uh, the formulas are recursive, uh, but in the uh, discussion uh, given in a calculus book, uh, the recursion is not mentioned uh, because while functions are discussed in the calculus book, uh, well, conditional expression recursion is not. Uh, numerical recursion where you uh, index a number, uh, the kind of recursion where f of n plus 1 is some expression in terms of f of n or even f of the, uh, all the previous uh, n's. That's uh, common uh, in mathematics. Uh, so anyway, I could do that. Um, and um, in the spring of 58, uh, Minsky and I had proposed to start an artificial intelligence project. Uh, when the fall came, I had enough ideas to get our two programmers and some math graduate students started on implementing LISP. We planned a compiler, but that would take a while, uh, especially given the total inexperience and the IBM people bragging about the 30 man years they had put into um, uh, implementing Fortran. Now, of course, 30 man years uh, is thought to be a rather trivial effort uh, to spend on implementing a um, programming language. 
uh, in the meantime, what we did was we hand compiled list functions. And um, avoiding ugliness in recursive function definitions uh, required uh, inventing garbage collection and hiding it in the program for cons. Uh, IPL used explicit erasure, and it was quite complicated because they did allow merging lists. So what happens if you erase a list and another list that you do not want to erase points into a tail of the list that you do want to erase? Well, the way they did it was that uh, for sub-expressions, they had a system of responsibility bits. Uh, so if you erased, uh, you would uh, a, a list then, if it was responsible for this tail, then you would erase the tail too. If it was not responsible, then you would not. So uh, IPL programs could have a kind of bug that they called a space thief, where uh, some uh, structures that should be erased uh, were not. Well, uh, so garbage collection, uh, which as you will remember, uh, works by uh, when you have a free storage list and whenever it runs out of storage, then uh, it marks everything which is accessible from the variables in the program uh, and then puts what is not accessible on the free storage list. And that's hidden in the const routine uh, because the symptom for uh, running out of free storage is when const wants a new word from the free storage list. There aren't any. Uh, so this still allowed things to be elegant. Now, I had to write a quarterly progress report for um, the Artificial Intelligence Project, which was part of the Research Laboratory of Electronics uh, quarterly progress report. So I uh, put a universal function called eval and the idea was it was to show logicians how elegant it was compared to the many-page definition of a universal Turing machine. Well, logicians didn't pay any attention to that. Um, but Steve Russell pointed out that Eval was an interpreter uh, for Lisp and uh, hand-compiled it. Uh, I believe the Eval that I put in the quarterly progress report uh, wasn't quite correct, as innumerable people uh, pointed out to me uh, over the years. Um, oh, yeah. Well, I might as well tell an anecdote of Starting being one of the initiators of artificial intelligence research, and maybe even being, Minsky and I were the initiators of artificial intelligence as a project where you asked for money to do artificial intelligence. But anyway, it was an attractive idea so that it wasn't so difficult. 
And let me tell you how non-difficult it was. Uh, it seems that uh, the government, or specifically uh, the armed services, were grateful for M- to MIT for what all the good things that it had done during World War II. Um, and so it, um, in the late 50s, so it took it 13 years to get started to implement its gratitude, um, uh, it gave MIT a joint services contract for, I think, $3 million, which was a substantial sum of money in those days, uh, like 10 times what it would be today, uh, to be excellent. And MIT did what it does with such monies that become available. It says, how shall we distribute this among the departments? Uh, and the math department's share was uh, support for six graduate students, but uh, it wasn't clear what those six graduate students were to do. So uh, Minsky and I were in the hall of building 26 at MIT, and I said, uh, Marvin, let's have an artificial intelligence project. And he said, that's a good idea. And just after we had agreed to that verbally, uh, along came Jerry Wiesner. And we said to him, we'd like an artificial intelligence project. And he said, well, what do you want? And we said, "Um, we'd like a room and um, two programmers, a key punch, and a secretary. And he said, okay, and how about six graduate students? Uh, So we said, yes, that would be fine. Uh, So there were these six math graduate students that he didn't know what to, to, uh, it solved his problem as to what they ought to do. Uh, So I was spoiled. Uh, Since then, I've had, came to believe that getting money was like ordering something from the Sears Robot catalog. Um, lasted for quite a long time uh, to be able to get money so easily than it that did run out it was our own fault. Um, curious thing is that we had PhD students, and when they got out and got university jobs, then they also wanted grants. Um, and it was clear that if you took a simple exponential uh, growth model, and then the entire population of the U.S. would be uh, faculty in artificial intelligence uh, before many generations. Uh, so, as is usual with growth, uh, a phenomena came out that um, caused the growth curves that are initially exponential uh, to level off. Um, So the subset of lists comprising functional programming may have been the first functional programming language, but a uh, conflict between elegance and efficiency became immediately apparent. Uh, The 
Functional programs were not merely elegant. They provided an appropriate formalism for proving properties. And this became one of my major uh, research and teaching interests. But the LISP programs often had to be rewritten in an algolic program and using uh, replacement pseudo-functions in order to make them efficient. And I suppose this afflicts all uh, functional programming languages. So I gave to uh, a LISP program. Here's the uh, current form, or the form since... Uh, 1960 of a list program for uh, maybe the if actually took came around a little later rather than conned uh, but anyway it was it's pretty old and uh, <coughs> uh, I was still a bit old fashioned and liked infixes so here's the same program uh, written where A stands for a boldface A stands for car, boldface face D for cutter, uh, drop off uh, parentheses where there, uh, where you can get by with some uh, convention, and so that's a, a, a more compact form of the same program. Um, uh, nobody, there, there were various M expression forms of Lisp in which people would write something like that, uh, but uh, they did not survive um, in competition with the uh, plain ordinary S expression list, or at least I don't think they did. Um, So I, when I taught LISP, I, was, I actually had people prove correctness of programs. Um, okay, now I want to finish off. Uh, well, I forgot what I was going to finish off with. Give me 30 seconds to remember it. Well, it was important, but I can't remember it. <laughs> so thank you. Um, I do have a question about the history of LISP. Um, one of the things that, co having come into the history of uh, programming languages myself uh, after Scheme brought the threads of Lisp and Algol together. Uh, one of the things that I've always wondered about and have always uh, you know, hoped for the opportunity to ask you um, is you are on the Algol 60 committee. It seems like of the virtues of the Lambda calculus, Lisp transmitted some of them forward, Algol 60 transmitted others of them forward, but it's, it, but the the two didn't seem to have any influence each other until they came together in scheme. In particular, I'm thinking about lexical scoping. 
um, most of the um, really powerful properties of lambda calculus weren't rediscovered in LISP until lexical scoping came in. Algol 60 had it from the beginning. Uh, so I was wondering if you could comment on, on how those two seemed to miss each other for so long. Um, okay. Uh, part of it was ignorance on my part. Uh, uh, namely, uh, I didn't think about scoping, really. Uh, and uh, scoping problems arose very early, and ad hoc solutions were adopted and um, I would have a tendency to just uh, sit there while these guys were arguing about uh, uh, different kinds of variables. I forget what the terms that they, that they used. And uh, my reaction was, you'll, you'll solve this problem. Uh, there was this tester problem uh, was the... Uh, proposed by uh, Jim Slagle, uh, and uh, I didn't pay a great deal of attention to it. Now, with regard to lambda calculus, um, uh, some people have said LISP is an implementation of lambda calculus, and it's not. Uh, What I took from lambda calculus was the lambda notation for uh, representing functions. I uh, didn't take anything else. Now, um, uh, if I'd understood lambda calculus better, uh, then I might have done more, but it might have been a mistake uh, because other people have uh, written programming languages which more directly implement lambda calculus. Now, a key thing about lambda calculus is that a lot of the constructions that are used in LISP, uh, for example, conditional expressions, can be omitted from the language itself because the lambda calculus can just do it. But it's a bad idea. Uh, Namely, uh, what you want is something that will compile into using the conditional instructions of the computer and uh, rather than something that will generate the either the expression lambda xyx or the expression lambda xyy and then apply them. Uh, so, um, okay, so this passes has, has not as much relation to the lambda calculus as one might suppose. Uh, oh, hi, Dick. Thanks. Uh, Dave Unger here. So, two of my most favorite ideas in our field, I may even say I like them even more than object-oriented programming, are uh, things that you either invented or were there when they invented. Uh, one is the whole program and data being interchangeable. And you know, I once got a, managed to do an assignment in 20 lines of APL instead of 1,000 lines of PL1 by using that. And the other is uh, the, the interpreter for our high-level mainstream language. Things happen right away instead of waiting for a compiler and then waiting to run the program, living in a live sea of things. 
And so I'd like you to talk about um, either the invention of those or what it was like to be there the first time that existed in the world. Uh, either or both of these ideas, please. Uh, let's see. They were... Um... Program and data being oh, yeah. interchangeable okay. was the first one. Uh, well, the first one uh, was, I would have to say, accidental. Well, not quite accidental. Uh, namely, I wanted to write a universal Lisp function in order to impress the logicians. And so I wrote one and included it in this first quarterly progress report. And it was Steve Russell who said, I'll hand compile that and it will be an interpreter for Lisp. And I was a bit startled. (laughs) Uh, And uh, so he did it it and it was. And I came to like it. And uh, it still took... Now, uh, I... uh, So that has been a successful idea. Uh, And the other idea of having uh, programs be data is uh, an important idea that may be considered more abstractly than its implementation in LISP. And uh, my uh, question that I always ask when somebody tells me that a language owes a lot to LISP, uh, somebody just told me that Ruby owes owes a lot to LISP, I ask, well, uh, does Ruby have access to its own abstract syntax or does it have to parse? And it, the answer, this, which always makes me sad, is that it has to parse if it wants sure. to uh, manipulate the, programs in itself. So um, the, the second idea was uh, having an interpreter for your main language instead of a compiler, instead of waiting for your Fortran to compile before you see what happens, living in the read eval print loop sort of thing. Well, uh, of course, actual list programs have both. And I I have to say that uh, for the little programming that I do, not very powerful programming that I do, I stick to the read-eval print uh, loop because they're not large computations. What was it like the first time you had a read-eval print loop instead of having to punch your cards on that key punch and wait? Those are two different questions. Uh, (laughs) Namely, if you have read-eval print loop, if you don't have online access, uh, then you still have to punch your cards. (laughs) Uh, So... Uh, we're talking about uh, Redival print coming along around 1960 or 61, and uh, the Stanford AI lab having terminals on uh, people's desks uh, being uh, 1972 or three. Uh, so there was more than 10 years, and I think we were the first 
to uh, the Stanford AI Lab was the first to uh, establish uh, to make it standard that everyone, even the secretaries, had terminals on their desks. Thank you. Uh, first of all, it's, it's, it is an honor to have you here with us. Um, going back to the original presentation on the Elephant uh, programming language, um, the goals are very similar to those of the semantic web. Um, allegedly, what the community wants to do is through ontologies based on um, mathematical logic, be able to write agents that could process stuff such as, I wish I had an iPod, and um, expressions similar to the ones that you mentioned before. I was wondering if you would like to offer your opinion or, or forecast of whether or not we will see that happening in the near future. Well, uh, near future, I don't know. Uh, it could be the near future, or it could even have been uh, the near past. Uh, but um, when uh, W3C decided not to use Lisp format, uh, Lisp format, but to imitate uh, SGML uh, for uh, uh, that showed a certain capacity to make mistakes. <laughs> Which probably they, uh, uh, they haven't lost. Okay, thanks, John. Thank you for listening to the Oopsla podcast. If you want to know more about the Oopsla conference or if you want to get additional Oopsla podcast episodes, visit the conference website at oopsla.org. This episode, as well as the other episodes of the Oopsla podcast, are licensed under a Creative Commons license. The intro and outro music is by a band called The Plugs. The song is called Go East. <laughs>